Cutler is best known to the listeners of this podcast as Elizabeth Walton from The Waltons. Beyond her iconic role in over 200 episodes, Cammie would go on to become an educator and has even taken the time to become a mom. Please welcome to the show, Cammie Cutler. How are you doing, Cammie? I'm doing very well. Thank you for including me in this in this conversation. Thank you for um, basically giving in and saying, like, fine, he's not stopping. <laughs> he's not going to stop with his messages. Uh, let me just get this over with um, during the holidays. <laughs> well, I feel I, the, the holidays is like the perfect Walton's moment, right? Yeah, I think so. That's when we were most relevant, perhaps. Well, you know what? It's interesting because one of my questions, I'm going to go right into it <laughs> because it has to do with the holidays and religion even. Um, so I'm Jewish. I have um, I grew up Jewish, Long Island Jew. But um, I can't figure out if you are Jewish or not because I, I find <laughs> out, I'm like I type in, you know, Kami Cutler, um, religious background or Jewish. And all I get are these lectures <laughs> about people and um this one post that you had made where you mentioned that Eric Scott is Jewish and he mm-hmm. um, had a regular bar mitzvah at 13. But do you want to just go on the record or is it private? It's totally <laughs> fine if it's private, you know. It's not private. Um, <laughs> my background is that my mom's family is Christian and my dad's family is Jewish. Okay. So you're half. But when, but when they married, um, my my dad was wanted to raise his children as Jews, and my mom was very amenable to that idea. She had a great deal of respect for the religion. She, mm-hmm. The way she describes it is, is as a religion that um, that centers and values education. Yeah, I'd say so that it's, was it's accurate. So that was that was she was supportive. Um, however, with the caveat that she wanted a Christmas tree, <laughs> a Hanukkah bush. Yeah, <laughs> right. So she still wanted to do stockings and a Christmas tree and exchange gifts. Because she was not a very religious person, but mm-hmm. you know she certainly grew up culturally Christian. So, um, but then, uh, then as things moved forward, my dad had kind of a short attention span. So, and <laughs> and I was working a full time job, you know. So um, there wasn't a great deal of religious instruction. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly not compared to Eric's family, where Eric, you know, Eric had his bar mitzvah. Um, he's got a brother who's a rabbi. I've got cousins who are cantors and rabbis, but my family was was more secular than that. Um, mm-hmm. I always say the, the strongest religion in our family was actually USC Trojan football. <laughs> you know what? At least it was religion, right? It was something. <laughs> um, I always, I'm not religious. I'm not very, very religious, but being somebody who's – I live in a very Jewish area, and my neighbors are both rabbis. You know, it's like pretty yeah. – it, it kind of leaks into your life. And um, I always say that you just do the best you can. <laughs> you know, there's no contest. You know, well, just, and I – you know, I, I love history, um, and I love traditions. And so, you know, um, I love Passover. Um, mm-hmm. So, so you, yeah. And, and, you like sitting there for reading through the, the whole thing? <laughs> Well, I'm I'm really fortunate because my, my cousin, who's a cantor, is also um, he feels the primary purpose of Passover is to teach children the story. Sure. Um, so we don't do a very very long reading of the entire text. Yeah. We do an abbreviated version with all the fun bits. Yeah, the long so ones the, are long, you know. Yeah. So so the the focus is on singing songs and learning yeah. history and learning the story and um you know it's it's Cotler Cotler Saders are super joyous. That's awesome. And that's the way it should be. I mean, and the kids are looking for their matzah and their, you know, oh, yeah. all that kind of stuff. So it's a lot of fun, you know, and it should be. And that's that's you know, I, I think that's great. Um, I didn't actually mean to jump right into such like kind of like a big you know question, but you know I'm I'm, I'm glad I to like, know. You know. <laughs> I like those questions. I mean, okay. as 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 an educator, the 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 kind of meatier questions are the ones that I find most interesting. So you're, you're doing well. <laughs> All right, thanks. Um, so life before the Waltons. Um, like, was there an entertainment life? I'm not going to say like, hey, do you remember when you were five? No, uh, like. What was your career like? I mean, because this is what's crazy is once you're in the Waltons, you have a career, right? I mean, a legitimate career. 
I think um, <clears throat> we were not an entertainment family. Um, we lived in Orange County, so we were a good hour, hour and a half from the studios. Mm-hmm. Um, my mom had a full-time job at IBM. She was a programmer and a marketing rep um, and loving her career. And my dad was very busy with the the family store. He was in the Schmatz business. He was Cotler's for men clothing. Oh. <laughs> so, and I was in, in um, preschool. So I was busy, yeah. um, but, but we went into the city for uh, photographs, you know, just like family pic- pictures of the two kids to give to the grandparents kind of photographs. And I was very small for a five-year-old and I don't think I ever stopped talking. So the photographer said to my mom, she could easily do commercial work. She's got a great look. She's small for her age. She's not shy. And my mom was like, yeah, I've got plenty on my plate. Right, right. I'm good. <laughs> But she said I nagged her. I harangued and harangued her that I wanted to be on television um, mm. until she cracked and uh, sent the photographs to an agent. And the agent responded and said, we'd, we'd love to meet her, um, met with me, and then said to my mom, we'll call you when she turns six. And the reason for that is that uh, California um, laws protecting child performers, there's a big difference in the number of hours a five-year-old can work versus a six-year-old. Oh, okay. So a five-year-old can only work three or four hours a day, and a six-year-old can work eight. Wow. I did not so, know that. And it, although going back to 74 or 73 maybe. Um, no, no, this is this is still true today. Oh, okay. I mean, I would imagine yeah. today it would even be more strict. Like, I know, um, what was it, um, Coogan's Law came into uh, – is yeah, that Co- part of that? Um, Coogan's Law is a separate law. It, it predates um, – my start in the Waltons, so that was something I was protected by. And Coogan's Law is just about the money. So Coogan's Law is saying oh, that okay. 25% gross of the of a child child performer's revenue goes into trust. I see. So it, it's basically to ensure that when a child grows up, the parents haven't spent every single dime they earned, which was, of course, Jackie Coogan's situation. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't apply to all child performers. Um, it doesn't pl- – There's you have to have a certain um, – like you have to have a real part. Mm. And it does. I don't think it applies to reality TV. So there's still some gaps in terms of sure. protections for children. Um, anyways, but I don't want to get on that particular high horse. <laughs> um, so the agent called when I turned six. My mom was surprised that they actually made the phone call. Um, she figured she'd take me on auditions for a couple of weeks until I got bored because I had a pretty short attention span. Excellent. <laughs> like um, dad, right? <laughs> yeah, like dad. And and. And it was a complete inconvenience for her because, you know, they'll call, the agent will call and say, Cammy needs to be in Hollywood at four o'clock this afternoon. Oh, and my man. mom worked in L.A. and I was in Orange County and my mom would say, no, I can't possibly pull that off, which I think was a shock to the agents who were used to a parent being like waiting by the phone, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so my mom, you know, had some boundaries in terms of what was possible or reasonable. And within the first few weeks, I was cast in the homecoming. Wow. Was that your first audition to go on um, the Waltons? It wasn't my first audition. My first audition was for a gun smoke. Mm-hmm. Um, but I believe that that casting agent was looking for um, redheads for the Waltons. Mm-hmm. So she, she kind of passed my name on to Pam Palafrani, who was, I think, casting um, for the homecoming. So it was, it was quick. It was just a few, it was just like, it was less than a month between the start point and being cast on the homecoming. Do you remember that audition? I mean, it was forever. I mean, it was so little. I, I mean, I, I have terrible I don't. memory. Yeah. I have a pretty good memory, and it's funny. I don't remember the homecoming auditions at all. Um, I, I remember um, I remember my, I remember my. auditioning for a commercial early on for, I think, High C. Oh, okay. um Because I got made it to the screen test, and at the screen test they had – uh, to screen test me, they had me eat a, a piece of bread with peanut butter on it and talk about how wonderful the peanut butter was. And I, I was sick of peanut butter because it was one of the few things my brother ate. <laughs> oh, no. So I did, I did great up to that point, and then I couldn't sell peanut butter. Um, so I remember that. I remember in the Gunsmoke audition being asked to cough because I was supposed to play a little consumptive child and not really – remembering how to cough like if, if, if she had coughed i swear to god if the casting director had coughed in front of me i could have done it right, but just right. someone saying cough to me as a little six-year-old i think i cleared my throat and did oh, not no. get the part <laughs> so which is fine because i ended up on the waltons as right, result, right. So, it ended you know. up okay 
Yeah. But I, I don't, the, the kids tell me that on the Waltons, for the homecoming audition, that they auditioned us in groups, which was unusual because they wanted to see the children together and look for kind of an energy or dynamic together. Mm-hmm. And they also tell me that um, Earl told the, 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 the actresses and actors who he, he eventually cast told them in the audition, you have the part, which was super unusual. They mm-hmm. always just tell the agent. Um, so in the room, he said, you are going to be my brothers and sisters. Um, and my mom remembers that because she said that when I came out of the audition, I said, I'm, I'm going to be on the show. I'm going to, I, I, they're going to use me. And she didn't believe me because that's not how it works. She just thought I was imagining things as sure. a girl. Mm-hmm. So that much, that's all I got on the, on the homecoming auditions. That's a lot. <laughs> it's actually a pretty good uh, retelling of it. I would imagine. All right. So your mother has a, her own career, uh, which I mm-hmm. just think is fascinating on its own programming in you know the early days of um, IBM. It's, not even the, it's actually not even the middle. The, you know, it's like kind of like the middle of IBM and your father is running a business. All of a sudden you get this role and you have to learn lines. Um, we're, like, were you a big reader at this time? Were you able to achieve this on your own? Was Or was it your mom or father, like, pushed into the role of coach all of a sudden? I think um, I was a reader. I'd, I'd gone to a Montessori preschool, and I'd picked up reading quickly. So I was a pretty fluent reader by six. Um, and I, I loved to read, so that was not a challenge. Um, my mom would... Um, would underline my lines in the script and then she would read them to me at bedtime mm. and have them have her read them with me and we'd go back and forth a couple times and, and I learned it pretty quickly. Um, in fact, if you look in the homecoming, I think I learned everybody's lines. <laughs> it was and probably they had easier, to, right? <laughs> they had to break me of mouthing with, along with other people's dialogue. Oh no, that's hilarious. <laughs> and I also apparently would correct the actor. Like I, I would say to Patricia, if she didn't remember her line, I would tell her what it was, which I'm not sure is all that charming coming from a six-year-old. <laughs> um, the, the, the bigger challenge for my mom, it wasn't so much me learning my lines because I, I did that pretty readily. It was... Um, it was getting me to the set and mm. finding someone to stay with me because by law in California, you have to have a guardian, someone over 18 with you. So mm. that was the nightmare was like, who's going to take her and, and the logistics of scheduling, you know, time off work for her and time off work for my dad. And, and my grandmother took brother, me along. Right. As well. Right. Who, had, right, who so. needs, of course, uh, parenting. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so that was the hard part. The hard part was, was the logistics of, of getting mm. me to the set and had making sure there was somebody to watch me. Well, it sounds like it was more of a burden for them, at least at first, maybe to get you know to get into the flow of it. I think it was one of the ways I was fortunate because you know when I was when I was young, if I complaining is is like part of the culture of a set, you complain. Sure. Um, and if I came home and complained, my mom would say, "Don't go in tomorrow. Just stop doing it." Right. Because from her point of view, it was it was a it was a burden. It was an inconvenience, and it took a lot of coordination. And life would be simpler if I didn't act. Mm. So I never had any pressure to act. I only was on I was on set because I wanted to be. Did you do you have memories back then of like loving being there and doing it? Yes. Mm. Yeah, I I I loved being there and doing it. I loved the um, all the different people to talk to. I loved. Um, all the new things to learn. I asked everybody a million questions and, and, you know, the focus puller would teach me how to pull focus and I'd, you know, hover around the mixing desk until the sound mixer showed me how, what his job was. Um, and I also loved the kind of group of people pulling together to tell a story and to pretend. I mean, children do pretend, right? That's a sure. regular game. Right. And to suddenly be pretending when there's actually a real cow <laughs> and real hay and other people who are totally into it. Um, yeah, I thought it was it was my kind of thing. Amazing. I was perfectly built for it. Now, it actually sounds a lot like there may have been a strong correlation between Elizabeth and you. Was there? I mean, did you bring your own per- – I mean, I'm, I feel like I'm talking to – Elizabeth in a lot of ways, um, because it feels like, it just feels like you are that character. But I mean, I'm, you know, of course there's a separation, of course, but how much of yourself did you put into the role or everything maybe? I don't, I mean, I think, I think as a child, um, 
you know, you're a child. That's the first thing. And that's a fairly universal thing to be six or seven years old. Um, I was aware of all the ways Elizabeth was different. Um, like Elizabeth didn't know where babies came from and I knew where babies came from. Mm -hmm. So to me, Elizabeth was a little, um, uninformed. Um, Elizabeth was also the baby and I'm, I'm the eldest of two, right? So I'm the, the oldest one at home. Um, so that's how I feel. I feel like the eldest, but on the set, I was the baby. So Elizabeth was kind of babyish to me. Um, so there were definitely some ways where I, I saw clear differences between Elizabeth and me. And then as you continue to perform and become known for a character, it's even more important to have real clarity about the differences because in your, in your real life, you know, you're, you're creating friendships, you're, you're developing your identity from six to 16 and you don't, you're fighting for who you think you authentically are, even if you don't have a character to play, right? That's like the work of sure. an adolescent. Who am I and who do people think I am and how do I show people who, who it is I want to be? Like that's what growing up is about in a lot of ways. Mm. So when you, when you add the layer of portraying somebody who's being written for you, um, I, I think you get kind of stringent about the differences, um, that said, at the same time, the writers know you, right? They come to the set and chat. The producers know you. They've spent years with you. And they often would take things from our real lives and fold them into the character. So, mm. like, I was a strong student at school. Elizabeth was represented as a strong student at school. Sure. Um, I liked uh, <clears throat> when, when the show ended, I traveled abroad, and they wrote that into Elizabeth's character, that she had gone to Europe. Mm -hmm. So... I think it was convenient to lift from our real lives, and I think um, I think they also perceived it as sort of easier for us if they were picking qualities of our own qualities to put into the character. But there were loads of things Elizabeth did that I found completely mortifying. Mm. So one of the things <laughs> that um, that I like about my podcast, which let me talk about this show for a second. Yeah, go no, ahead. No, no, no. Is I'm very I'm relatively new to the Waltons. Um, I grew mm. up not watching it at all because my parents would say, oh, that's a show about, you know, some Christians or Catholics who live on a mountain. And I, I think that's the way um, it was kind of perceived. Same thing with Little House on the Prairie, which I have a podcast about now. And you watch it and you realize, all right, it couldn't be further from the truth, mom and dad. So uh, you lied to me. So, um, and so just like during the pandemic, it's one of those things I kind of started watching. And I, I really... I watched it with my wife and we watched the entire thing straight through, which is, mm -hmm. so we watched a decade of your show in a matter of like what, two or three months or something. Wow. So it's one of those things I think, you know, if you're growing up with it, all right, you, we saw um, Kemi Cutler grow up in front of us. We saw everybody grow up right in front of us, you know, older, pass away, you know, um, be replaced, <laughs> you know, a lot of strange things, but, mm. but to experience it in such a, a quick amount of time is it's a weird thing to see. And, but I think that it also brings out certain characteristics of the characters, such as your character. I feel as though you, you, if I were to draw like a graph, it's as though they're trying to develop here, then they're kind of slowing it down then they're bringing it up again. And I feel like your character really goes through so many different changes and so mm -hmm. much growth. Um, and I wanted to know if you felt that way, maybe while you were doing it, or even if you look back now, was there a period of time where they thought, okay, we need to do something more with Elizabeth? That's a really interesting question. And and I would, I, I think the honest answer is I don't know. Um, I mean, you've watched the show in like a concentrated fashion, mm -hmm. Which was not how it was designed to be watched, it's right? Natural, yeah, it's terrible. Um, well, I mean, it's not, I don't think it's terrible or unnatural. I think it's fascinating, and and I think that you know when they were making the episodes, I think they were always anxious that it would go into syndication, in which point in time it could be shown in almost any order, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So they tend to avoid things like story arcs that go beyond the hour. Um, yeah. <clears throat> so there's, there's almost a, I think a apprehension about threads that run over time, um, which is, 
which is sad. And I think it's delightful that television has gone past that. But um, but it was definitely what was happening in the 70s. It was super episodic. Um, every episode had to stand alone. Yeah. And there was a tendency to abandon things that happen in one episode and not carry them over to the next. Like the Brady Bunch, you know, everybody gets a little chat with dad at the end. Let's move on to the next episode. Right. Problem solved. Um, I, what I was conscious of was that terrible things happened to Elizabeth a lot. Like, I remember Michael saying, you know, poor Elizabeth, like everything goes wrong. Like she's had more trauma than any child I can think of. And and they even built it in when they did the the episode of the burnout. Elizabeth like lists all her dead pets. Um. So so I, I think feel that, back to that. I have to. Uh, that line is not sticking out of my head, but now I have to hear it. Well, if you, I mean, her her storyline in the in the burnout is the house burns down. She loses her doll, and she decides it's just not safe to care about things mm-hmm. because they disappear. And and she actually has a line which for some reason I remember, which goes something like, you know. My butterfly died, and Pete the raccoon died, and Calico the cat died, and now my doll is gone. And oh, it's heartbreaking. Right, life is too dangerous, and I'm just gonna with I'm gonna pull in emotionally and not get involved. Mm-hmm. Um. So, and then you know she broke her leg, she fell in a mine shaft, she fell off a bridge, <laughs> and, and you know clearly it's because it's a drama and something needs to happen, and, sure. and those are exciting things to happen. Um. You know, she was she had nightmares and slept walked about the Ferris wheel. She was eventually haunted by a poltergeist. I mean, that's a lot. It is. It, it. I love the how you're putting it out there, though, and how Michael did as well. Yeah. So I'm I'm less aware of like character development and like decisions to like did the writers at some. I mean, I'm I'm curious really what you're observing because, and I wonder if I were to watch like episodes back to back if I'd pull out that kind of thread too. I mean, basically what I'm referring to is more along the lines of there would be like maybe three, and I would have to go and look at the the episodes, but there would be like maybe a three-episode focus on your character. And all of a sudden, all of a sudden, then it would take a back seat. You know, it's like, oh, okay. <laughs> um, and it would go this way with all of them because there were so many characters. This is another yeah. thing that I think maybe people... When I first started watching the show, I was like, how many freaking kids are in this family? (laughs) And I know it's a trope. You know, it's part of the show. But it's like, oh, my God. Like, I couldn't imagine how much this show costs just in salaries. Like, Oh, no, not that much. Uh, Yeah, yeah. (laughs) because all of the kids, I mean, they signed us on at, like, the bare minimum to a six-year contract. So. Well, the price alone in checks, maybe. No, we we were not. We the the children were definitely not that much of an expense. Right. Um, yeah, not us. Right. Um, well, but 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 what's more of an expense, honestly, is is needing to shoot outside, mm-hmm. which which takes time. Shooting with children, which means that you know you lose them at a specific time. Um, shooting period. Because every time a jet flies overhead, you have to retake. Mm-hmm. Um, shooting, um, what other things might make us expensive? I don't think we were that expensive. Well, I mean, certainly, look, compared to how much they're shelling out on programs today. Oh, no, it's, it's insane. It's, it's like, oh, I couldn't even imagine how much they're spending these days. And it's as though they're doing less. <laughs> it, it, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, and, and I think, you know... <laughs> I, it's an interesting question. Like the early shows to me had a, the, I was pretty little when I noticed there's a, a main plot and a subplot. And the main plot is, is about one of the adults okay. and the subplot is about one of the children. And frequently the subplot somehow echoes the theme or lesson of the main plot. Sure. Mm-hmm. Right. So that, that was something I picked up on when I was little, like, Oh, okay. I see what's going on. Um, and, and then I, I mean, I'm interested in, in the shift to me in quality as we get older and what are the factors that go into the show feeling different in the last few seasons as opposed to the first few seasons? Well, I think um, I'm going to compare it to Little House on the Prairie a little bit. And I know the, the comparison is fairly unfair, <laughs> fairly unfair. I don't know if that's really correct, but it's just because the completely different types of shows, but mm-hmm. When it comes to, I'm going to imagine when it comes to the production, all right, it, it might be similar just because you're shooting outdoors very often and mm-hmm. 
you're pretty much on the same, you're in the same location very often. Um, right. And except, you know, Little House, I think, um, has a far smaller cast. And I have to imagine that, um, I'm kind of losing my point here. I'm sorry. Uh, once I bring up Little House in a party, my mind just kind of wanders. But um, <laughs> sometimes. Um, I guess what I'm saying is it's the connection between the two shows is, is very similar. And it was on at about the same time, um, mm-hmm. which I'm just going to bring to my next question. I'm sorry. So people do make this comparison all the time of Little House on a Prairie and the Waltons. What was it like then? Like, do you remember this kind of coming up often? Sure. I mean, I, I remember because Little House, Little House started a couple of years after us. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, uh, and I think we had the feeling of, oh, you know, NBC's doing a, a rural family drama. And that's probably partly because we were successful. Like we worked as a rural family drama, which let's be clear, nobody expected it to be popular or successful. Mm-hmm. So, so there was that. When Little House came on, um, I had read the books backwards and forwards a hundred times by the time that show aired because I loved those books. They're yeah. great books. They're very um, fun. Yeah. yeah. And, and so I struggled with Little House because it, it wasn't close enough to the text, right? Except for the, yeah, except for that first movie, they really abandoned the entire. <laughs> Well, and even Story. like how Pa looks, it wasn't right. Oh, yeah. Like Pa should have a beard, and and Pa needs to be more austere sure. than that. So all the all the kind of updates they've made, which are, make perfect sense from a television lens, but for someone in love with the book, you're like, wait a minute, that's not how it went. So I was that was always my hurdle, um, but I think that that um, that I mean we knew about Little House and Little House knew about us and and when I first met Melissa Gilbert I said do people ask do people mix you up with me and she's like yes all the time <laughs> so we, you know we'd all been in the both of us had been in the position of having to say someone looks at you they're like you look really familiar are you that little girl from Little House in the Prairie and I'd have to say no I'm the little girl from from the Waltons and she had the exact same situation so people confuse the shows and typically people who love Little House love the Waltons and vice versa but I mean Little House was a different show it was much more you know michael landon's baby mm-hmm. whereas our show um you had you know f- five really experienced adult actors um who were most of whom had very significant theater backgrounds who were interested in making an ensemble piece mm-hmm. and who were fighting really hard for authenticity in their characters i mean ralph ralph used to make sure when he came in through the door at the end of the day for supper that he had sawdust in his hair. And those little details, um, people may not casually notice, but being there, I, I think it adds a lot to the entire process. Like, And I'm sure also for him, like knowing that it's there, it probably brought a lot out of him. I, you know, I think too, um, for, for Ralph and for Will, who politically – you know, were, had, had always been really invested in the working man, right? Will had been a, a labor organizer, and he he worked with farm workers and others. And Ralph had had been, you know, part of progressive politics on the East Coast. He'd become a he'd become a um, a minister because of his interest in you know serving the community. Mm-hmm. It was important to both of them that that it was an authentic portrayal of poor working rural people. Mm-hmm. And and I think that and then you know Richard Richard's own experience growing up because his his parents I mean um, in so many ways Richard couldn't be any couldn't be any close couldn't be any less like John Boy right like he his parents were phenomenal uh, ballet dancers who who'd worked who danced in Cuba and danced for City Ballet he grew up in New York mm-hmm. but his grandfather had a farm in Kentucky so he'd spend his summers on the farm. So there were things that he knew about, you know, like how to jump on a mule. And the whole ones, all the adults, I think, set a tone of of the importance of it being authentic mm-hmm. that the rest of us followed with. So, like, I mean, even though I might be eight or nine years old, I felt comfortable saying to a director, that's not what a little girl would do. Mm. That's just not realistic. 
And I think, you know, the experience of all of the actors who are on the show um, is kind of maybe where I am going with the how it's an unfair comparison to Little House. Um, mm. Of course, Michael Landon has his background. I think he even brought in the Bonanza crew that was filming mm-hmm. it. Um, but for the most part, most of the other actors really didn't have too much um going, you know, prior to Little House and the Prey. But here you have a number of really um, exciting actors at the time as well. But I guess the you cannot avoid the comparison just because two family shows, timepieces, you know, you know, all of those type of things. Well, and for both shows, you know, most programming on television focuses on cities. And is written by people who live in cities. And most programming on television, you know, looks at middle class or upper middle class people or rich people, right? Um, So even a simple storyline like how do we pay for the new hot water heater? Mm -hmm. And I'm I'm sure Little House had similar storylines too where where there was just struggle of how are we going to make it. Um, That's... There are plenty of families in America for whom that's a very familiar sensation, and and I think um, I think both shows resonated in part because of that. And and you talk about the Christianity part, right? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and I think that you know it was super important that that faith and religion was present in the Waltons because that's the reality of of the lives of folks who were growing up. Um, in central Virginia in the 1930s and now. And uh, I remember talking um, to one of Earl Hamner who created the Waltons, one of his sisters about, about the family because I'd, I'd gotten to know the County where they grew up and I'd gotten to know that, that, you know, there was a fair level of struggle and, and, um, and um, how shall we say um, uh, economic activities that weren't necessarily aligned with the law that went on in their mm-hmm. community. Um, and I, I said to his sister, like, how, how did you all turn out so well? Like, cause the, the, your, your neighborhood, you, like your, your, your town was a little rough. And she said, Oh, mama didn't let us off the porch unless we were going to a church event. Mm. So the church is a way to like protect and, and um, collaboratively raise children in a setting where things are tough and where maybe there are some unsavory activities happening in some haulers, right? Well, you mentioned, um, so you, you actually worked, um, and correct me if I'm wrong with any of these details, but um, after you graduated from Berkeley, um, you um, got a bachelor's in social sciences. You went to Charlottesville, Virginia to work as an educator for small <laughs> rural schools that when you met, um, had your, this experience that you were just talking about? Yeah, that, yeah that's when I had enough enough information to ask the question. Um, yeah, I, I went to UC Berkeley and, and um, got my teaching credential there too. And my focus in my undergrad program was really American studies. And and, um, and I'd only ever lived in LA, New York, and San Francisco. So I thought, okay, I need to, I want to move to a completely different part of the country because um, I can teach just about anywhere. So where shall we go? And we ended up moving first to Charlottesville. And then I got offered a really interesting position in Nelson County, which is the county where Earl Hamner grew up. Okay. So I ended up working in the county where the Waltons is set, which I'd, I'd really never been there, practically never been there before. So it was such a, a learning experience for me um, in terms of just appreciating. It's a small world, right? It's kind of a small world yeah. opportunity. <laughs> <clears throat> but, but learning about, I mean, the beauty of the landscape, we talk about it all the time on this on the on the show, right? Like Will Gear is constantly Grandpa's giving prayers at, you know, the flowering dogwood and the trailing arbutus, and yep. he's you know he's he's describing the landscape over and over and over again. And Earl Hamner's introductions and narrations do the same thing. And it wasn't until I lived there that I was like, oh my goodness, like this place is astoundingly beautiful, and the change of the seasons and and the mountains and the mist and the flowers and it's it's, it's just real, breathtaking. Right? <laughs> right. That's why we kept talking about it all mm-hmm. the time because it's so impactful. Um, and then learning more about, you know, people who, who live in rural communities and, mm-hmm. and their strengths um, and the things that they contribute. It, it was, it was yeah, it was a remarkable experience. I learned so much. 
And you took the experience you got there, and you returned to California um, in 2001. I actually lived in L.A. around 2001. But um, it was a good time for L.A., actually. I, I remember that period of time being kind of fun. Um, <laughs> but but then I left. A New Yorker in L.A. can only last so long. That makes sense. <laughs> Either you're permanent or you have to bail out after about a year and a half. Um, so it, it's just you, you can't walk anywhere. It's just everywhere so far. Uh, I know. <laughs> but they've been in Outburger. So, I mean, there's that bonus um, <laughs> from L.A. that I miss every day right now. But um, so you at this time, you started working um, at the Environmental Charter Middle School um, and you finally accepted um, the position <clears throat> of principal. I mean, this is all I, I mean. I have to wonder how many fans of yours from, you know, the being Elizabeth know that, you know, you would achieve such such a big career in education, you know, it's really a phenomenal um, achievement that you have. Well, it's very sweet. I, I think um, <clears throat> I was, I've just been really fortunate. You know, my, my teaching experience in Virginia was in an alternative program. I had more experienced and incredibly gifted teachers that who were my coworkers. I got to watch them and the program was, it was interdisciplinary. It was project-based. It was thematic. Mm -hmm. And I loved that. And then when I came back to California, mostly because I had two little kids by then and, and I wanted them to know my parents. Um, when I moved back to California, I ended up teaching um, at environmental charter schools and then helping found a, a K-8 charter in L.A., mostly because I was looking for a place for my son to go um, that was arts integrated. And I learned a lot about arts integration and Waldorf education. And then after a few years as um, a co-director at, at that school at Ocean, um, my the founder of Environmental said, do you want to come back and, and write our charter petition and design our middle school? Because our parents say we need a middle school. Wow. At that point in time, we just had the high school. And the high school was, is fabulous. It's a fabulous program. It does a wonderful job. But if you can get to the middle schoolers, then you you develop, you deliver ninth graders who are more prepared to learn and more prepared to learn in the in the way that we're teaching, which is, you know, focused on problem solving and and social um you know, social projects and, and looking yeah, at your important. community. I have a 15 year old yeah. who um, is in 10th grade and we have a, the reason why I bought this house is because of our school system. It's, it's so important to have the right um, school system. Um, and yeah, I mean, for you to be given an opportunity to kind of help design the program is pretty amazing, right? It was, it was, it was extraordinary. And then I was just super fortunate to have a terrific team of people around me to help, help realize it, you know, um, just experienced, smart, creative folks who, who I always say opening a charter school is kind of like putting on a play or, 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 you know, doing a TV show. You're, <laughs> you're imagining it. You have to collaborate. Um, you're getting as many people involved and and on board as possible. Lots of things go wrong, and you have to like figure it out on the moment. Like, okay, so they never delivered the chairs. How are we going to open without chairs? I, I guess every, everybody needs to bring a chair from home. Mm. Okay, that's what we're doing. Here we go. So you know, it's it's um it's been amazing. It have really you, has been. Have you considered like a board of education run or any type of local like um, political type of running? Um, not really. Um, it's just, you have a lot I, of a passion for it. So it's kind of like, it seems like I, I kind of expected it. Like I, I did a quick search even with your name and like board of education. I was expecting it. Kind of. Well, I mean the, the, the board of LAUSD, which is the district that I live in is, is the biggest, um, I think the second largest school district in the nation after New York. Mm. Um, and, and that's its own massive political machine. And, I mean, I think it's too honestly, what I like about charters is that it's small scale, so okay. a small group of people can have a significant impact on the on on the organization charters once are you great. once once you not all charters but many charters are great in my experience um, yeah i mean in my experience yeah. like um i haven't my kid has not gone to a charter school, but I have friends who have participated whose kids are participated in charter schools, and it, it's really changed the child like it's really you know, done the, amazing things. There's a there's a there's a premise or a, a notion in the world of ecology that diversity is good, 
And ecologically, they're talking about the principle that if you have a monoculture, right, if you're only growing one thing for acres and acres and acres, then a single blight can destroy the entire, the mm. entire, um, everything, everything dies, right? right? But if you have more diversity in a system, then it's just more resilient. And I feel the same way about education, that, you know, families work to try to find a, a place to live where they, they believe the schools are good. But children are all different, and you can live in a neighborhood with strong public schools and just have a child who doesn't fit, Absolutely. you know, and for whom it doesn't work. And charters create this, like, alternative when it's done properly and when there's, you know, good charter law and there's good charter oversight so that people are accountable. Mm -hmm. um, then it creates this other place. In California, charter school teachers are all credentialed. We take the same state tests. You know, we have the same fiscal audits. So there's, when an authorizer is doing it properly, there's good oversight to hold folks accountable. And then there's, um, you know, there's, there's just more flexibility in terms of how you deliver curriculum, what curriculum you deliver, how you, how you spend your money. And it just gives an opportunity for different ways of learning to exist so that when you do have a kid who, for whatever reason, isn't, isn't necessarily flourishing, or you have a family who just is interested in a different approach, you have those options out there for parents. Yeah, I think it's great. And I think if people have the um, option to participate in you know, the creation of a charter school, because you know, it goes back and forth depending on the communities. But um, I don't know. It's one of these things that I, I think is a positive um, and I think the Walton's Mountain could have used it. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, so you you mentioned your kids. Um, what do your kids think of the Walton's TV show and watching? Um, and how um, about how old are your kids? You don't have to give me like exact ages. Or... It's okay. They're they're young enough that it doesn't matter. Uh, twenty three and twenty six okay. are my kids. kids. <laughs> I know. Um, and um, they, you know, I would have to say not Walton's fans. Um, <laughs> I feel like, you Do know, they know it's not a religious show. Maybe you should let them know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think they have a basic sense. Like, they've seen a couple episodes. Yeah. Um, they think it's really weird that mm -hmm. I'm there. Um, you know, I think I'm more likely to have questions from my daughter, like, what's going on with your bangs, mom? Oh, no. Or what are you wearing? <laughs> They're bullying um, little Elizabeth. <laughs> right. <laughs> and then, yeah, so so they, you know, I, I think the biggest, the biggest impact of the Waltons for them is, is that I have the second family, right? Is like their relationship sure. to, to the other actors um, and sometimes their kids, right? So there was a moment in time my daughter was taking, I think, a chemistry class. That was hard. And one of Mary's daughters had like majored in hard sciences and like they we got them on the phone together and you know, Mary's kid was tutoring my kid in, in science. So it's it is absolutely like having a second family. It's a big one too. Yeah. Um so right, by the time you were at the end of the Waltons, we're not talking not counting the movies yet. Yeah, you know, we're in the final season of the Waltons. Uh, were you driving at this point? Yes. All right. We, this is not one of those security questions, but what was what was your first car or what was your first cool car? That's a good question because when you act as a child, um, that's your big purchase, right? Because yeah. you've made money. You've, hopefully, you've got money in the bank, but you don't. There's really not much to buy when you're a child. John bought a diesel Mercedes. John <laughs> bought a diesel Mercedes. Eric had an Alfa Romeo convertible. <laughs> All right. And my dad talked me into buying a 1957 Thunderbird. What? His theory being that it would be safe because it was heavy and big. And cool. And it was cool. It was a beautiful car. <laughs> what color? It was so much fun. It was, uh, it was blue, light blue. At least it wasn't red. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't red. <laughs> Elizabeth driving around and, you know, with her red hair and the red convertible with red interior. Now, um, that... That is not only a really cool car, but I have to say, like, I've spoken to so many people, like, tons of Little House cast, and, well, John, that's the coolest car that um, somebody has said that they bought. Even better than Team Butler. <laughs> yeah, it, it was, I loved it because it was it was quirky, right? Because it was old. Um, 
and it didn't always handle that well. Like you had to kind of baby it. Mm-hmm. Like if, if it got really hot, you had to turn the air conditioning off because it would overheat. And so it had all these quirks, which was fun. Well, you had a 57 um, with air conditioning. <laughs> right. And then, um, but then you, you, if you pulled up to an event, I remember going to the prom. I think my high school prom was like at the Beverly Mm-hmm. Hilton Hotel or something, and you roll into Beverly Hills and you you pull up the you know the valley parking, and there are all these super expensive vehicles, Rolls Royces, yeah. and you know vehicles that are like three or four times more expensive than the car I was in. But they always put my car right in front. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I was like, "See, that's awesome." Whatever happened to the car? Um, whatever happened to the car? My dad kind of took it over when I moved to Virginia and had babies. And then I think my mom eventually sold it because she, she's like, you're not going to use this car. You have two children. You can't, yeah. ha- what are you going to do with a two seater? Yeah. And so she just kind of went out and sold it. So well, someone I mean, has it. I wonder who. Few, very few people can say that they own that car. And um, I think that's, that's like the best first car I've ever heard. Um, <laughs> so, um, so the Waltons is now over, you know, just go back there for a moment, but you know, you're or you're wrapping the the final season. Actually, you wrapped the final season, and then it was over, right? Right. Um, it seems as though you made a conscious choice and um, to not go back into acting. Like, was it a conscious I, choice, or was it kind of like <clears throat> you're just not sure? Um, I, I, it was not like oh no, I'm going to stop acting. It was more. Um, I still had an agent. I was. Uh, I was going on auditions, but it was the first time I'd auditioned, really, mm-hmm. you know, since I'd been little. Mm-hmm. And the dynamic had changed, right? When you when you audition as a 16-year-old, it feels very differently than when you audition as a six-year-old. I imagine. Um, and I remember being really aware of kind of the hostility in the waiting room, right? Like this, this like underground competitiveness or energy between the women in the room, all, you know, 16 years old, 17 years old. And me thinking, oh, it's not that important to me. Like, we don't have to, like, I would be fun to work some more, but I'm not, I'm not going to shoot daggers at anybody over a part. Um, There was that. I was also thrown by the, um, the expectations. So for example, if I was auditioning for a show that was a Western, my agent would say, do you have any cowboy boots? And I'd say, no, I don't have cowboy boots. Why do I need cowboy boots? So you're telling me that the casting director can't just imagine cowboy boots. Right. Um, so I think some of the norms of the process were um, confusing to me. Like, why am I expected to like dress in tennis shorts if I'm playing a tennis player? Like, why they they they, right, they can't right. just picture that, um, and then also the power dynamics in the interview itself, right? Because sometimes casting directors can sort of lord it over the actor, um, and again, I wasn't invested enough to 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 um, to engage in that. Mm. Yeah, it's um, got to be a lot of stuff going. I mean, being sixteen alone is tough, you know. Right. And, and then I ended up going off to college, right? So I, I started college early. Um, and so then I wasn't really auditioning because I was in school. And then I lived in New York for a while with friends who were who were going to New York schools um, while I was trying to figure out what to do next. And I just, I just kind of drifted away from it. Um, <clears throat> just to me, the focus from my agent on like, what are you going to do with your hair? And... It just seems really shallow and stupid. Right. Um, are, are you going to college? Are you going to major in drama? I'm like, no, why would I major in drama? I'm going to major in something that's more interesting to me. So it was just being confused by the um, by the culture of of the industry, honestly, because I'd, I hadn't really been a part of that part of it mm. for so long. I'd been on a set with its own culture doing a job. Um, so... Uh- what about all right? So, you guys finished the season, um, and then the decision was made to not renew. Mm-hmm. Um, did you were you given the opportunity to um, have any artifacts? Like, did you accidentally bring home like anything? Or I'm not no. asking if you stole anything. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, no, they, they didn't. 
I mean, they, we didn't know it was our last episode. Yeah. So there was no moment where we would all be like, oh, I'm going to take this or take that. And then generally you wouldn't take anything because it all belonged to the prop sure. house. Um, the only thing they gave me, Elizabeth did a tap dance routine with Amy Godsey in some 4th of July episode. Um, and, and they made little satin outfits for us. And they let me take that home because they were sure they would never use it again. Um, That's pretty cool. <laughs> but other than that... Not as I mean, I've got scripts and call sheets and stuff like that, but no, I know but, this I mean, all goes back into a warehouse, you know, like it's all like, yeah. all right, let's you know, put it back into props and there's warehouses yep. throughout the world, basically, with everything. But, um, do you know if anything is like ended up anywhere, like John Boy's car, or you know, it's weird, there was so there were so many things on that show physically, <laughs> there were a lot of things on that show physically, um. <laughs> Most of it, it would have all gone back back in warehouses. The yeah. the cars were owned by a separate company that that was their business was like Cars for Hollywood. That makes sense. Productions, and so they would have taken it back. The one thing at some point in time, David Harper tracked down the pony cart oh. from the episode with Martha Corinne and found it somewhere, <laughs> and and managed to to get it back. And then they restored it, and I think it ended up at the Walton Mountains. With the Walton Mountain Museum, which is in Schuyler, Virginia. That's awesome. So that I know about. But they're all, I mean, like, what happened to the little coffee grinder? Like, that thing right. was cool. There's one um, water pitcher or coffee pitcher, right, that is used. Uh, you, I'm going to say that I'm the only one who's noticed this because <laughs> I'm, I'm a lunatic and I'm, I watched it so quickly. There is one particular coffee pot that is used. It's white with some chips on the side. And anytime you go to anyone's house where they're serving coffee, it's the same pot, you know, <laughs> and that pot has to be somewhere. <laughs> it's, it's like a porcelain thing with a few specific chips on the side. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah. there it is. And I would say to my wife, look, that's the same one. And she's like, you're crazy, you know, but so it's stuff like that. I really kind of wonder, it has to be somewhere. It's not the kind of thing you would just throw away, but I don't know. No, I, I, it's, it's, I mean, I, I can tell you that when we made the show, like the prop houses were amazing. And at some point in time, when I was a teenager, I discovered that I could borrow things. Oh, no. So if I asked really nicely, the wardrobe lady would take me to the prop house and get me a costume for Halloween. How cool is that? That's and if amazing. I asked really nicely, the prop guy would take me to the prop house and get me things for, for my Halloween party. So for a while, I had a coffin in the front yard during Halloween. Oh, if you really were nice, it would sometimes let you do things. Um, so that was cool. And and I know that there were also things that we used that sometimes had like names in them. I feel like once upon a time, John Walmsley was given a coat and it like said Wallace Beery inside. Oh, really? <laughs> so everything was steeped in history. And and it's true, too. Like now, you know, as I got older, I'd watch television and old movies and be like, wait a minute. I've been on that street. I know that street. That's mm. one of our streets. So, you know, wow. the back lot at Warner's was, you can see it in Music Man. You can see it in, um, oh, gosh, uh, uh, Camelot, the, the musical. Really? Yeah. I've heard of the Music Man be using the same lot, but I never heard of Camelot doing it. Yeah. Um, the In fact, do you ever watch Kung Fu? Yeah, sure. The... um. The kind of temple space that with, they used uh, in Kung Fu with Rodimus Barra, right? Yeah, with Rodimus and yeah. um, and and uh, David Carradine. Yeah, I can never the, remember his name. <laughs> the um, the the temple set was used for Lost Horizon, and then I think before that it had been the Camelot, like Castle Palace space. Huh. You know, speaking of Rodimus, did, um, were you did you know him at all by any chance? We we knew a bunch of people. Um, I think we tended to make friends with with other young actors on the lot. So mm -hmm. people like Radimus, uh, Phil McKeon from Alice. Um, I the asked Edison. because he was in New York in the early eighties. He lived in New York in the early eighties, and he was going. Um, to, I believe he was going to. Um, I forget which actor school. Probably the mm -hmm. actor school, but I'm not. I'm. Now, I spoke to him because he was on Little House for a bit, and uh, he's a really nice guy and everything. He yeah. lives in France, but he, um, yeah, he mentions New York and around like I don't know what year you were, you were living in New York, but he was in there probably around like between eighty two and eighty five or something. 
Yeah, that's about the same for me. Fun time for New York, too. <laughs> it was a fun time for New York. But but I think we didn't really realize it at the time. But once talking to, to um, former child actors as adults, people used to come hang out on our set because there were a bunch of us. Mm. You know, we had each other. Um, whereas a lot of children are in situations where they're really the only child on the set. Mm. Um, so for the younger members of Eight is Enough, for Willie or Adam, um, for, for Phil McKeon, who was the only kid on the Alice set, um, coming to hang at our set, it gave you a whole bunch of people to, to be with. It's pretty surreal. I'm, I'm sure all of you looking around, you know, you, you're in the same industry and you're all kind of known for similar things, you know, that's... It's a shared experience, yeah. you know, um, and we were just fortunate to have a, a pretty relaxed set and, and, you know, there's a, there's a teeter totter and a tree house and sometimes there's a mule on our set. There's a lot <laughs> yeah. going on. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I don't want to steal away your entire morning, but, um, the one, the last thing I kind of wanted to just ask, it's a little bit of a, um, it's a weird question, but <laughs> so you had uh, Will Greer passed away, which um, from in between filmings, like so, and then before that, Ellen Corby had her stroke. Um, it must have been a very turbulent time, and I'm just wondering how involved the actors were with the direction of the show at that point. Were you privy of where it was going, or was it all right? Show up and you know, here are the scripts, and this is what's happening. <laughs> Um, it was, it was, I show up here, the scripts, this is what's happening. I think that's just the way it has to be, probably. I mean, I'm not, obviously I'm not an actor. <clears throat> and, you know, it is, at the end of the day, it's a business. I think it depends. Um, I know for some time on our show, uh, they would, the adults would do readings. Not the kids, but, but when a script was just about ready, like the week or so before it was filmed, <clears throat> they'd bring... They'd allow the adult actors to meet over lunch and read through it. And I think that's that's a really profound decision to make because it gives the actors the opportunity to give feedback, to tweak things, to to, to have that moment um, and that access mm. to the, the most important decisions, right? Which is what is the script going to be? And then... And those actors can also be really good stewards of like the continuity of character. Mm. Um, and then uh, over time that just fell away, uh, which then means the only way actors can make changes is to kind of have a tantrum. Right. Right. So you're, you're given the script to read like a week ahead. I suppose maybe you could call and complain, but I I can't imagine doing it. As you stated, and, it's, it is the place to complain because <laughs> it's a set. And, yeah, and and then and then what ends up happening is you start to film, and an actor goes, "This doesn't make any sense. What 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 the words don't the, what the action the the scene it just doesn't work. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't. It's not it's not consistent with my character." And in that moment. Um, you're holding up shooting, right? You're costing people money. You're making folks late for dinner at home. And it's a really unpleasant position to be in. Mm -hmm. So there's lots of pressure not to do it. Um, but then I, I could also imagine as a, an adult who's more privy, feeling pressure to do it. You know, you, you want the show to be quality. You want things to play well. You, you, want, your, you, you want your own performance to work. Um, so I think, you know, being enlightened enough to give actors access to the script in a space where there's time to, to give feedback and mm. to express concerns. I think that that makes a huge difference. I would say so. Um, also, I guess maybe with so many people on, you know, who are in the cast, it can become more complicated to the more people that are involved. Yeah. Um, so one of the things I, I really want to mention is that you have a YouTube channel and I was watching um, last night and today you interview your mom Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I love this. Um, I, I think that I, I like, I really enjoy the channel and um, I can't wait to kind of go through it. I just learned of it about a week ago, but definitely if you just go to YouTube and type in uh, Kemi Cutler. Well, I, I can, my YouTube channel came about because my daughter wanted to learn the editing software. Oh, okay. Um, so that was the whole <laughs> driving force is Callie wanted to edit. 
Um, so I'm like, okay, let's try it. Um, and then we did my mom because, well, I think my mom is fascinating. So, so she was over for, you know, a holiday or something and we threw her on the couch, ambushed her. She's engaging. She's good. I think she's really interesting. She's a good storyteller, both my parents. Um, and then, uh, I'm actually way more active on Facebook. Like Mm -hmm. I'm I'm regularly on Facebook and, and my daughter just put together a website for me, uh, which is, you know, creatively called camicotler.com. Um, because we, we got it last year. Well, the cast, a bunch of the cast started getting together for like Walton events because we'd always done events in LA and in Virginia. And then people in the middle of the country would be like, what about us? I can't make the trip. (laughs) Um, so we found a, a, a fellow who put together, um, Pickers markets, and he was experimenting with including, you know, nostalgia actors at his picker markets. And we were interested in, you know, having a, a way to go meet people and give access to fans um, who lived in different parts of the country. And so now we've been, see, we've got one coming up in, um, in the spring in uh, Waco, Texas. And then we're hoping to be in Charlotte, North Carolina in May and in Oklahoma in October. Now, can I learn more about these on your website? Like, do you have a link yeah. to it? There'll, there'll, be, there'll be more information on, one, on my website. And then I also talk about it on my Facebook page. And my Facebook page is, you know, people ask questions. I talk about, I, I write You're about episodes. You're very active. It's, it's really... <laughs> It's it's the, it's the educator part, right? Like I wake up in the morning and I have my cup of tea and then I answer a question or something like that. Um, you know, it's kind of it, – it's weird. On the Little House side, you have Wendy Lou Lee mm-hmm. and you have Alison Arngram. And those mm-hmm. are two people who are very, very in the middle of it. Now, I'm going to say that you wear the, the hat of those two people because really you're you're really out there – with a lot of contact, you know, you really, um, you're very accessible. And I, I, I think that, um, well, for one, I appreciate it because I got, I tricked you into coming on here, but, <laughs> but I think that the fans do appreciate that a lot. And, um, I, I hope you realize that, that how important it is to so many. Uh, you know, one of the, one of the gifts of being on the show was it took a little girl who lived in a polite suburb in Orange County and put her in the middle of a vibrant group of people from all different places with all different backgrounds and all different experiences at all different ages. Um, and I think the show continues to do, to do that for me. Like I'm able to to hear the opinions of people all over the world because I, you know, check in on Facebook with a cup of tea. And because I was a teacher you know, I've established very clear expectations about behavior on my page and there are rules and there are no put downs and we can talk about any topic, but mm-hmm. we have to do so respectfully. And, you know, I give, I give direct feedback if people violate the rules and if they can't follow feedback and adjust their behavior, then I send them out of the room. I love it. Um, You're like Olivia. <laughs> yeah. It's, 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 it's the same way, same thing you do if you've got, you know, 30 middle schoolers or 30 high schoolers in a sure. room. You know, you have to have some ground rules or, or things can become unsafe and unpleasant. Um, I do have two more questions. Can I squeeze in two more questions? Simple Go for ones. it. All right. So when you're driving around in your 57 car, right, um, <laughs> what were you listening to back then? It's the early oh, 80s. Early 80s. Um, the first music that I really, really listened to was the Beatles. Oh, oh. Deep, deep Beatles fan. All right. And then um, I like words. So I was a big Elvis Costello, David Bowie, um, Joni Mitchell, The Clash, The Gang of Four. Good stuff. X. Everything's great stuff. Um, uh, now I'm, I'm having a huge, like, I'm in love with Anderson Pack. Hmm. I don't know Anderson Peck. Oh, you should totally look up Anderson Peck. He's got a really good Tiny Desk on NPR. Tiny Desk um, is an addictive little channel. Yeah, his <laughs> Anderson Peck. I think his he's, he's got one song on Tiny Desk that was their most viewed. Yeah, I've I've found a lot of artists that show up on Tiny Desk that I'm like, this is my favorite band now. Like, you know, there's just so yeah. many. There's so many. Yeah, I love it. Yes. Yeah. Um, and my final thing is, do you have a favorite episode, like something where you're like, I, this brings me nothing but joy. I'm not going to ask my least favorite. <laughs> um, no, I don't think it works that way when you're on the show. Um, right. like I, I enjoyed making shows where something interesting happened. Like if I had to fall off a bridge or, or, you know, fall off a 
Ferris wheel or whatever. Yeah. Like that, that was exciting to do. And so that was fun to shoot. Or if there was somebody fun as a guest star on um, that was fun to do. Yeah. And then to watch, I just like watching before I hit puberty. Right. As a rule of thumb. Yeah. I mean, that's, um, it had to be very tough growing up on television for any, for anyone, but in particular, um, a female. And yeah, it's, I mean, I, I cannot imagine the kind of awkwardness that might have happened. I think, I mean, you're inevitably awkward at that age and you're inevitably really self-conscious and it doesn't help if you have to be on television. Right. And you're um, kind of like on a, yeah, a TV show <laughs> and yeah. everybody knows you and you're that redheaded little girl. Yeah. <laughs> well, so I, I can, like when I watch episodes post puberty or, or during puberty, I, I can see how uncomfortable I am. So those are harder for me to enjoy. Right. Um, but like watching the homecoming, I even I think I'm adorable. <laughs> yeah, I have to wonder like if you go, look at me. <laughs> look at how cute I am. Yes, I do. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> um, well, Kemi, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me this morning. Um, I really, really pleasure. appreciate it. Um, if there's ever a time you want to review an episode or come back on to talk about absolutely anything, the door's wide open. I'll be promoting your um, your YouTube your um, website and your Facebook. I'll put the links in the show notes. And thank of course, um, again, thank you so much. I really do appreciate it. And definitely you win the award for having the coolest first car. <laughs> Yay! So far, so far. So far. Well, you'll you have to let me know when I get knocked off the, the top rung. Yeah, I, I think it was Dean Butler went to his audition in a VW Beetle and, and his last car when he left the set finally had a BMW. So he did a cool like upgrade you know <laughs> <laughs>